Chris Brown, and welcome to episode four of Radicals in Conversation in-house. This is the new podcast series from Pluto Press, produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. Every month, alongside our regular show, we're also sharing an episode that's been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme. These events feature authors of some of the most exciting, radical non-fiction being published today. This month's episode was recorded at the end of July. It was a hot day, you can hear the fans whirring in the background, and Gracie Mae Bradley and Luke de Noronha were in conversation with Naya from Bookhouse about their new co-authored book, Against Borders, The Case for Abolition. The book is published by Verso, and it's available to buy online or in-store from Bookhouse. Just head over to bookhousebristol.com for more information. So, let's dive right in. Here are Gracie, Luke and Naya on Radicals and Conversation in-house. So Gracie and Luke, thank you both for joining us tonight and sharing with us your generous vision of how we realise a world without borders. I'm grateful to you both for coming in the face of this extreme weather, which is a stark reminder of where we're heading and where many people already are in the struggle against climate change. I would also like to say thank you to you all for coming. Uh, it's really nice that you're here to engage with border abolition. It's a nice reminder of the hope that we must hold as we sit collectively and think about these huge and often very hard to imagine upheavals. And it affirms that it's possible for us to join together again and again to organize and mobilize to end the cruelties of the border nation. This talk is being recorded by Pluto Press. Their podcast series, Radicals in Conversation, is a brilliant political podcast series. Uh, they had a recent episode with abolitionist organizers Avia Saraday and Shanice Octavia McBean with Francois Vergès, and it's a really good listen. You can find our episodes on their website under Radicals in Conversation in-house, and I'll share that with all the emails that I've taken of attendees. So thank you to Chris from Pluto for facilitating this. Introductions then. Gracie Mae Bradley is a writer and campaigner with interests in migration, policing, surveillance and abolition. She was interim director of Liberty, the human rights NGO, and a founding member of the Grassroots Against Borders for Children campaign. She has written for The Guardian, The Independent, Open Democracy and Vice, among other publications. Her essay, From Grenfell to Windrush, appears in After Grenfell, Violence, Resistance and Response, which was published in 2019. Luke de Noronha? is an academic and writer working at the Sarah Parker Raymond Center, UCL. His first book, Deporting Black Britons, Portraits of Deportation to Jamaica, was published in 2020, and he was also one of the co-authors of Empire's Endgame, Racism in the British State, which is a powerful intervention in debates around racial capitalism and political crisis in Britain, also published by Pluto Press. He has also produced a podcast with deported people in Jamaica called Deportation Discs. So we're going to begin with a little reading from Gracie and Luke from the book. Okay, I'm going to read from page 11, which is the introduction to the book. Just a couple of paragraphs and Gracie will read the next two paragraphs. Just to give a taster of how we set out what we're trying to do in this little book. Three broad themes guide our analysis in the chapters that follow. First, abolition requires that we are guided by dreams of a borderless future, our abolitionist visions. In the words of Berger, Kaber and Stein, abolition is both a lodestar and a practical necessity. Across the chapters that follow, we attempt to show how the world could be otherwise through an attentiveness to critical openings in the present. Second, our abolitionist framework is concerned with identifying non-reformist reforms, changes in the here and now that can reduce the power and permanence of borders. 
Non-reformist reforms offer a way out of the binary opposition between reform and revolution and help us identify specific reforms in the present that will reduce the power and reach of borders in the short and long term while avoiding those reforms that perpetuate the logic and the legitimacy of immigration control. Finally, border abolition requires that we dismantle all the social structures underpinning the permanence of borders, which requires us to connect with wider struggles against connected forms of state violence, something radical activists tend to do much more effectively than those with professionalised roles in the migrant sector. Our invitation to get out of our silos so that people working on issues surrounding migration engage more effectively with feminists, anti-racists, prison abolitionists, people resisting counter-terror policies, and those working on issues surrounding tech and data, and of course vice versa, shapes the structure of the book and the arguments it pursues. So clearly, border abolition is easier said than done. The realisation that the one thing we need to change is everything can certainly be overwhelming. How do we fight to close detention centres and end deportations, stop transnational corporations ruining lives and destroying the planet, while at the same time nurturing spaces of sanctuary and safety in our neighbourhoods? How can we reduce the purview of surveillance, big data and algorithms, while at the same time developing new forms of intimacy beyond the family, all at a time when disaster nationalism seems to be extending its hold over popular political imaginaries? Though the road is long, we should recognise the hopeful signs around us, developments already in motion, and think about the strategies that can build on this work. We need to keep imagining and building, even as despair shadows hope. In Ernst Bloch's words, the work of hope requires people who throw themselves actively into what is becoming, to which they themselves belong. Clearly, this claim chimes with the politics of abolition. Mariam Akaba writes of hope as a discipline, while Bell Hooks writes that hopefulness empowers us to continue our work for justice, even as the forces of injustice may gain power for a time. To live by hope is to believe that it is worth taking the next step. Hope is not the same as optimism, but rather defined by a worldly attentiveness to what is emerging in the conditions of the present as they are carried into the future. We offer this book as an example of such hope. Thank you very much. Okay. I'd like to open our discussion with the origin of borders. They often feel like overwhelmingly permanent structures, so I'm asking you both, how old are borders? Have they always been with us, carving out territories in the world? If not, why were they drawn up in the first place? Also, what do borders do? There are many hostile narratives surrounding borders and immigration, that borders protect citizens from ominous threats of immigrants. But what do you see as the true function and role of borders within the state? What do borders do to the people that they exclude and include? And what do they do to serve power? Can I take the first half? Yeah, I'll do your solid and try and take where the borders come from. <laughs> that's not an easy one. Um, from, from what I remember about what we wrote. Uh, no, one of the key things that, that comes back when you look at the history of immigration controls is that the history of modern immigration controls really only begin in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. So here, many people will know the first Modern immigration restrictions were the 1905 Aliens Act, designed to exclude Jews escaping persecution from Eastern Europe. Uh, and in America, famously, the Chinese Exclusions Act in 1882, I think, which was just designed to blanket block all the arrival of any Chinese immigrants who were coming to work. The thing that is useful to think about is that under colonialism, in the settlement of the New World and the building of a global economy, labor was provided for, whether by forcing indigenous people to try and work for a while 
finding gold, working in plantations in mines, and then when that didn't work through transatlantic enslavement um, and through other forms of enslavement elsewhere, uh, and then through um, schemes of indenture after that, which were designed to get people to work on plantations all around, which is why, you know, uh, you have Chinese and Indian migrants in places like the Caribbean, in Fiji, in uh, Mauritius, elsewhere. What the historical literature shows is that it was when migrants from those places that were seen as racially inferior started to move to the New World separate from indenture schemes, so not being directly sponsored by states, uh, so to move in some way freely, to work of their own accord, like the Indians who moved to the west coast of Canada, like Chinese migrants moving. And it's at this point when people start to move outside of the direct control of the state, as countries like the US, Australia and Canada are dealing with new and growing populations of people moving from Europe and elsewhere at the same time, that kind of racist nationality policies and citizenship laws try to produce white nations. Australia had a white Australia policy from the beginning of the 20th, uh, or from before the beginning of the 20th century to the kind of 60s. The US is racist, eugenic kind of 1924 Immigration Act, but before that, the exclusion of Chinese migrants, uh, and Canada similarly. Uh, and so actually the birth of nation states in the wake of empires changing and shifting, the immigration controls were central to forging nations racially defined through the exclusion of people who were starting to move in ways that weren't totally controlled and in ways in which labor couldn't be disciplined through the, exactly the same means. So broadly that is to say, quite recent, <laughs> the late 19th century. Uh, and in the UK, we can see a similar story of a colonial imperial nation that was never really an island nation, was always an imperial formation. And it's only in the wake of the Second World War that we have our first Citizenship Act in 48, which includes everyone in the empire. And then slowly attempts are made to excise and exclude all of the black and brown people arriving from the new Commonwealth while trying not to piss off too much the Australians and people from the old Commonwealth because they were never really designed to exclude people from the old Commonwealth. So that's broadly where, where borders come from. I suppose the central part of the book is that we wanted to think about what borders do now. So we wanted to get that out of the way, give people a bit of a historical overview in quite a short section. And you mentioned you were reading other books like Leah Cowan's Border Nation and you've been reading Harsha Walia's Border and Rule, really excellent books that we hope this is in conversation with and certainly not making any real claims against, but rather trying to build with and alongside and out from. Um, and they do that work. I mean, definitely Harsha Walia does that work in a global way uh, for a longer period. We just felt it was necessary to build from there towards what we wanted to say about racism and nationalism and capitalism. And then more broadly, we wanted to talk about what borders do in the present and give an account, which is how the book opens, of how borders don't do the things they're intended to do. And our work will try and you know, give, in quite a short book, uh, a useful account for both people trying to learn and people doing activism of different kinds, how borders are actually functioning. So maybe you can say a bit about. Yeah, and I suppose I would just add that part of our motivation for giving the historical context is that, of course, some things are presented as if this is just how the world has always been and it's natural and therefore it's going to be really difficult to undo. That's often kind of how policing is presented and discussed as well. And in unpicking that history of how certain things came to be and how new these formations actually are, I think it helps us to kind of A, imagine a world that is completely different, where we relate to one another in completely different ways. And it also, I think, helps to answer the question that you know, we've discussed that Angela Davis posed in a talk, I think it was in 2017, which is that question of why do we assume that the nation state is the default container for human community? So as we tell that story, we're able to explain it's not the default container, it's just a container right now. In terms of what we wanted to say about what borders currently do in the world, 
I think we wanted to make clear that borders mediate A, people's relationships to the state, B, relationships between people, and C, just that borders don't do what states claim they do. They don't stop people from moving. They might mean that people take more dangerous routes, that they pay people to facilitate how they move. They might mean that when people get to a particular place, they have a certain set of rights versus citizens who have another set of rights. If you're a migrant who moves with a regular status, you might have the right to access healthcare for a fee, the right to change employer if you let the Home Office know, versus moving as an undocumented person who doesn't have the right to work uncriminalized, doesn't have the right to access the NHS without being charged tens of thousands of pounds often, um, doesn't have the right to access housing without being criminalized, and indeed is criminalized just for crossing the border. So we wanted to make clear that Borders aren't about stopping movement, they're really about determining what rights people do and don't move with and the kinds of danger they face because of the kinds of journey that they make. Um, yeah, I'll leave that there. <laughs> I think That's that great. answers that really well. Thank you both. Um, I don't know if you could touch on really, really briefly before we move on to kind of different kinds of bordering, if you had anything to say on the particular gendered violence of bordering and the particular violence that's directed towards women and gender non-conforming people who cross borders. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the book on gender which is really, really great and I'm particularly interested in the kind of construction of the family for those who are codified as citizens and those who are not. Yeah, I can have a go. Um, in that chapter, I suppose, less than focus on some of the specific ways in which women and gender non-conforming people are punished by borders in specific ways, which is definitely true. The broad arc of the chapter is about the ways in which immigration controls in, in liberal states force people to present themselves under a handful of categories. Uh, so we know about the refugee, for example, who has to prove deservingness through persecution under very specific definition and with a culture of disbelief in our government and many others. We know about workers and students. Um, obviously, there are the investors who just speed through, but we, you know, we don't talk about that very much, although we should keep them in mind. But the other one is through categories around family, uh, family reunification. And so one of the ways to try and access rights in liberal states is through being able to define and prove that one is a proper spouse or has a proper relationship to a child. Um, and this, in my work, came up when I was thinking about the deportation of foreign offenders, foreign offenders to Jamaica, was that the Home Office is arguing that you should be deported because you have committed a criminal offence, there's a public interest in you being removed. The only defence really available with all of the slashing of appeal rights is the European Convention on Human Rights, let's see how long that we remain signed up to that, would be under the right to private and family life, right to respect for private and family life. Uh, and therefore people have to try and say, my relationships to my child and my wife and my friends, etc., are compelling enough that that outweighs the public interest in removing me. And this happens in all sorts of immigration cases. It can also be, you know, I want to bring my partner over or X person in my family over to join me. When can I do that? What state rights do I have to have to be able to do that? And that then forces people to define themselves in particular ways and lots of people won't be able to. And that's where, I guess, people who, are, who don't follow heteronormative scripts for all sorts of reasons, so that might be people who are non-monogamous. I mean, that's we're a long way away from that being possible. Uh, people who sell sex, people who, who don't have a spouse and don't want one, people who don't have a relationship to children that's defined biologically. So I know a lot of step-parents who really struggle to gain rights. In the UK, if you're an adult and you have a relationship with your adult parent, that's, that's worth nil. Relationships between friends are certainly 
certainly completely illegible and out of step with any. The only real way you could say, you know, with a non kind of clear relationship akin to marriage, biological relationship, would be if you're in a caring role that they define the, the benchmark is so high that it's almost impossible and very inhuman the way they then assess that. All of that's to say, in the chapter we go through thinking about the ways in which people have to define themselves in particular ways through gendered scripts that are normative and all of those who won't be able to meet that. So we think about the problem with marriage through thinking about sham marriage. We think about work and women's work in particular, about domestic labor. We talk about you know, building on Molly Smith and Juno Mack. We kind of riff off their work, their amazing chapter on borders in, in revolting prostitutes and just kind of nod to that in a, in a statement about sex work. And I think we also then talk about parental relationships to children, think about biology. And all of this is to say that the nuclear family and the various heteronormative scripts are legislated and defined in law at the border. And that's, that has a long history. So for people who are interested in the gender dynamics, Ethna Lubege, who's um, an author who writes about sexuality and gender at the border, has done a lot of really interesting work on both Ireland and the US uh, with a similar framework to ours, but much longer books that I think are really useful and I think we riff off to talk about how people who are not in the right kinds of relationships can't make themselves uh, deserving of rights and that we would want to live in a world and perhaps one of the ways to, to try and dismantle and chip away at borders, connecting it to radical you know, feminist movements and trans liberation, et cetera, would be to challenge the idea that those scripts are the ones we wanna, we wanna play by anymore and to expand the ways in which we might recognize our relationship to others and our, the ways in which we care for one another. That builds on obviously a huge conversation about social reproduction, care, abolition, uh, but we tried to have a little go of, you know, in our short chapter of bringing that to bear on borders. Sorry, can you just that name for me? Yeah, Ethna Lubege, it's spelled L-U-I-B-H-E-I-D, with some Irish accents along the way. She's got two books. One, interestingly, is about Ireland and about the fact that, um, you know, rightly we've celebrated the referenda in Ireland, which legalised abortion and gay marriage recently. I think it was in 2004. There wasn't a great turnout, but those who did turn out, four out of five voted to end birthright citizenship. And that was based largely on a moral panic about asylum-seeking women. You know, Ireland having, being a country of emigration, typically suddenly becoming a place, a multicultural society. A concern about asylum-seeking women apparently having anchor babies in the kind of US way, the 14th Amendment stuff we have with Trump in Ireland. And they voted that through kind of quiet, you know, quietly, at least as far as I was concerned, uh, so that now in Ireland, like the UK, a person born on the territory is not automatically a citizen. And that is really a reflection of concerns about migration, which women reproduce in which ways, and de demographic racism, which should be massive on all of our minds at the moment. To move on a little bit through to the final chapters of the book, which are titled Databases and Algorithms, you talk about the digitization of borders and the increasing technologies made to surveil, punish, and displace. You also, interestingly, caution against migrant justice organizations and anti-border organizing that fails to consider this kind of prevalence of digital bordering. So I was wondering if you could expand on the issue and the particular threats that the digitization of borders presents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so these chapters, well, I like to think that a lot of the book is kind of a, a semi-original contribution, but these were the ones where we thought, okay, we really haven't seen this ground covered, at least in the UK context, um, in the ways that we think are really important. And I suppose when we look at what is happening with tech and borders, or when we look at the development of new technologies that might be put to the surface of bordering, even if they haven't been yet, that is changing 
the potential scale, speed and efficiency of immigration control in ways that we really need to try to slow and or get ahead of. So if we consider, I think it's important to say at the beginning, the way these technologies are press released is not the ways that they necessarily work. So we shouldn't work on the basis that these things actually do what they say they're going to do. But if we think about kind of EU investment in things like uh, AI lie detectors at the border that essentially try to use emotion recognition, claim to use emotion recognition, which is not a thing, it doesn't work, but they say they use emotion recognition to try to discern who's a genuine traveller, who's being honest about the purpose of their journey, who's being honest about what is or isn't in their suitcase and so on. That's a kind of technology that's going to be inherently racialized because people express themselves, you know, differently and in ways that are culturally specific. But what it's going to function to do is mark people out from a norm. And those people are then flagged for intervention with the kind of human border guard who obviously is susceptible to all of the same fallacies that are in the data that have been used to train that tech in the first place. So we've got we've got the AI lie detecting border guards. Germany is making really significant investment in voice recognition technology that aims to discern whether people seeking asylum are from where they say they're from. Again, that's something that is going to be really fraught when subjected to algorithm. And in the UK, we feel that a story that's often told about the hostile environment is the story about the Windrush scandal, which is obviously really important. But there's an enormous kind of architecture of data mining and matching that underpinned and still underpins the hostile environment and it's pretty rudimentary actually what's happening is that the home office has been asking for data that's held by other government departments so held by the department for education for example or held by nhs digital held by the dvla and the Home Office essentially has got a list of people that it's looking for, that it thinks are undocumented, and it's providing some of those data fields to these other government departments using a matching algorithm to try to get up-to-date contact details for these people. What that essentially means, though, is that whenever you interact with a public service, if you're undocumented, you're at risk of being flagged to the Home Office for immigration enforcement. And so what that really means is people are afraid to send their kids to school, people are afraid to present health services, and there have been documented cases of people with illnesses, I think... Voice for Domestic Workers have some really awful case studies about, there's one about a woman who had cancer, knew she had cancer, was too afraid to go to the NHS, you know, ended up presenting when it was an emergency and of course the interventions had to be very different. So you've got a whole class of people who are scared to present to public services and for social support because of this really opaque, shadowy data matching and mining architecture. And the thing with the way the hostile environment data sharing is functioning and has functioned historically is that the frontline workers who collect that data sometimes but often are not aware that the data that they collect may be used for immigration enforcement purposes. So there were frontline homelessness workers who were going around mapping rough sleepers not knowing that the Greater London Authority was actually collating that into a map that it was then sharing with the Home Office for immigration enforcement hotspot targeting uh, teachers who collect school census data not knowing that that data might be used against the pupils that they teach and safeguard for immigration enforcement purposes. So that's kind of 
some of what I think is relatively rudimentary, low-tech use of data that's having a massive, enormous impact, and that's still happening here in the UK under the auspices of the hostile environment. And then, of course, you have private companies who, you know, motivated by profit, but when it comes to companies like Palantir, founded by Peter Thiel, Trump supporter, white nationalist, wrote a book called The Diversity Myth, who are just massively invested in making technologies that are going to harm, exclude and punish racialized people. And Palantir have built tools that are integral to the US's kind of deportation machine. They have a customs contract in the UK. They had a contract for data management in the NHS during the pandemic, and they're bidding for more NHS data management services. So we need to be really alert to the fact that these companies, you know, Palantir, IBM has a very long and checkered history, um, Amazon, all of these companies are really invested in kind of essentially resourcing the coercive dimensions of state power, and they are increasingly gaining a foothold in what are supposed to be ostensibly protective institutions like the NHS. And that's something that we have to be really alive to because of course, we're now in a place where the NHS is not and cannot build its own data management solutions. And increasingly states are not able to build their own data management solutions, but the people that are there to sell them the products are companies that are really happy to do very repressive work. So to move on a little bit to abolition, which is on the very front cover of the book, I think. Um, Against Borders reads as a manifesto for border abolition and your analysis of the border nation is paired with actions or things that we can do now to reduce the capacity of the state to exclude and deny people the right to life. Many of these actions are described as non-reformist reforms. What are non-reformist reforms? Where have you taken this concept from? And how do these reforms reflect non-reformism without reinforcing the power of borders? and the state. If you'd like, also you can provide us with an example of a non-reformist reform from the book. I'll give a bit of what we have as a definition of non-reformist reforms, because it's certainly not ours, um, but maybe say how we came to abolition. I suppose this book started with the idea that we should write a book about why there shouldn't be any borders. That's, that's how Gracie set the invitation over WhatsApp. Let's write a book about why there shouldn't be any borders. Um, and then we kind of came to abolition as a useful frame with many other people, not on our, obviously not on our own and not as innovators. We're not claiming to be leading something here. It was just that we were already thinking about politics of border abolition. And at a time when people, various people in different parts of the movement and writers and thinkers and groups were, were thinking about prison and police abolition, obviously in the wake of 2020, many people had been using that framework for longer. Non-reformist reforms have a longer history before prison abolition in the US and prison abolition has its own history in Norway and other places in the Nordic countries. But non-reformist reforms broadly have always been defined as a way out of an apparent binary between revolution and reform. And as we say, I suppose, reforms in the service of something revolutionary would be what I would say. And non-reformist reforms are supposed to be those ones, it's supposed to help us as a framework think about questions we can ask as to whether the thing we're fighting for now will serve our broader goal in the long term and when we think about many migrant NGOs or many people who are firefighting in different organizations different political movements it's hard to have a long-term strategy sometimes people don't get time to do that work but non-reformist reforms are ones that are designed to shrink the system into non-existence I'm kind of paraphrasing from critical resistance Maria Macaba other prison abolitionists in the US context who've written lots of helpful things but non-reformist reforms are supposed to shrink the system into non-existence they're supposed to be those reforms that we don't have to undo later 
they are things we can fight for now, which ultimately don't re-legitimize the thing we're against, like immigration control through, for example, training immigration officers or police officers or new kinds of tech, or let's argue for you know, tags for detainees rather than just ending reporting altogether. And as we write in chapter eight, and Gracie, you can look through and find an example that you want to mention. Um, and this is really Gracie's vision because of reading and being involved in abolitionist futures around the time of all of the uprisings in 2020 and beyond to think about how you apply other frameworks that have been given by Critical Resistance and Maryam Akaba, which basically ask yes and no questions about how you can determine what might be a non-reformist or reformist reform. Those questions are important because they help us, even if we have different kinds of aims, you know, if, if one person's working in NGO, a legal firm, thinking about strategic litigation, people doing the really important work on the streets and direct action, how they might be building towards a broad similar goal, which we think should be border abolition. I think we're in a moment when people are, are up for that kind of thing. I don't think reformism captures people's imagination very much. And I think we know, we might come to climate in the end, that we need to be dreaming big and thinking in longer term horizons about livable futures. Otherwise, we've already kind of lost. So non-reformist reforms for us were a set of questions we could ask. And hopefully, because we do have backgrounds in partly in the history of working inside NGOs in the academy, also connected to people doing activism, doing activism ourselves, etc. What kinds of strategic questions, what kind of longer term visions, uh, what kind of frameworks would be really helpful for people so that we can actually be on the same page and not undoing one another's work. And I think that has happened recently around deportation flights, something we're both concerned about, Rwanda and charter flights. I think there have been moments where we've seen that. If I can reframe a question for you to answer. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a no border world. And I know that a lot of the time during these discussions, there's an incredible kind of responsibility placed on like writers or activists to answer huge questions with very neat answers. But I'm going to do that a little bit. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask, knowing that abolitionism in part is about opening us up to these questions of you know, who lives, who dies, who, who thrives in this world, and how do we build a world that cares? Um, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is a geographer, I think, uh, an abolitionist geographer who's just written a really good book, also published by Verso, and has another one due out with Haymarket this year. She says abolition is about presence and not absence. So despite knowing that you may not have all the answers of what the world will look like without borders, can you share with us some visions or glimpses of a no border world? Yeah, but can I cheat and just read from of Utopia? <laughs> yeah, okay, so there's a couple of, yeah, I'll just do that. It would be more poetic because we already wrote this bit. <laughs> um, right towards the end of the book, there are some interludes and they're essentially speculative fiction. And when we were working on the proposal, we'd said to ourselves, we want to write some kind of portrait of a borderless world. We want this book to include that. We spent a lot of time really kind of working out the fine detail of what each chapter was going to focus on and that one was always just parked somewhere to the left. We didn't really think about it so much and it was also a question that Verso had asked us, our editor Rosie who's wicked had sort of asked us you know what what will it look like, can you include some of that and so eventually we did have a go, I was procrastinating, there were other bits of the book yeah that I was supposed to be working on but this is what I ended up working on so yeah, I'm going to read from page 164, A Possible Utopia. So, Hannah's mother is unwell, in a hospice, stable but fading. Hannah's father screened her yesterday with the news. They had known that this would happen eventually. Hannah's mother was diagnosed with lung cancer five decades ago. 
And while they had operated early and she had been under the care of a specialist on an experimental and highly effective treatment regimen, it was always likely that her rest would arrive before she was able to reach her third half century. Hannah will need to return to London from Cagayan to be with her father in his twilight decades. His care is not her concern. He has for some years been part of the borough's exchange, maintaining crops at the city farm and teaching children and adults his first tongue. Hannah trusts that the exchange will ensure that he is warm and well. But when she chose him as her parent at her half-century celebration, she made a commitment to walk him to the end of his life. Still, after she spoke with him, she felt a twisting sadness in her chest. She left a note, she didn't feel like talking, and this first movement would not take long, days at most, before she came back to redistribute her possessions and say goodbye. Flying is a mode of travel used almost exclusively in emergency. Tourist flights effectively ended when she was in her first decades. As the forest fires raged and the seas crept up, flying became more or less taboo, even before the councils formally abolished them in climate mitigation. In any case, flying was hardly leisurely. The storms made it more dangerous, and the abrupt change in time disrupted most people's alignments for weeks. People still moved, of course, but the usual modes would have eaten into time Hannah didn't have. Bicycles and pedestrian caravans weren't worth considering for this distance, and sunsubs, deft, solar-powered amphibious craft, moved only in daylight. At the port, Hannah asked the monitor in the wall when the next flight to London would leave, and then recorded a message for her father to let him know she was on her way. She had only flown once before to Tijuana when her siblings' mind had overflowed and civil harm response had asked Hannah to be part of their restoration. She was lucky. She had only five hours to wait and the plane was already there. She stepped out onto the tarmac and greeted the guides at the entrance. Compassion, she said, by way of explanation. They nodded and she sat down in a corner, stowed her bag and leaned into memories of her mother. So I won't read the whole of a possible utopia. And it's important to say that utopia for us actually ended up fractured. We didn't stay with Hannah. We went somewhere else because it felt quite difficult to write a kind of homogenous total utopia because we don't think that that's how it will be. But I guess, and Luke, you did more analysis kind of around this, so you might want to say more. But our borderless utopia is also one where healthcare and health technology is really different. People's relationships to their families and to their parents are different. The units that they live in are really different. Civil harm response, actually, some of you will know the Centre for the Study, well, Centre for the Study of Crime and Justice, something like that. But they have a really interesting policy paper on civil harm response units, i.e., can we have first responders who aren't the police? What if we have health workers, people who are trained in emergency mental health care, uh, and so on. So that's where the civil harm response thing came in. And in the latter half of Utopia, you'll see that there are technologies for climate mitigation and climate adaptation. I was thinking about it the other night, but there's a character you won't really know, but Jonah is in a wheelchair, but it's an all-terrain wheelchair, um, which I'm not sure whether or not you can tell from the book. So our borderless utopia is different in many, many ways other than just there not being borders. And that is the point of abolition for us. It's about transforming the conditions to which borders are a response. It's not the world as it is minus borders. It's, it's, it's a utopia in many, many senses. That's beautiful. Thank you. I just kind of wanted to ask you about the left here in Bristol, especially. This is particularly a part of the left that are, you know, cishet white males represented in trade union employment 
who have kind of defended both in obvious ways and also subtle ways the kind of anti-migrant, anti-sex work sentiments of certain union reps under the guise of like a working class unity. Uh, this is something you kind of delve in on the chapter on capitalism, where you talk about, you know, it as a symptom of the institutions rather than individual kind of behaviour that I'm describing. But I just wanted to ask you a little bit about this issue and if you've experienced it and what your kind of resolve is and what you say about a left who ignore bordering and migration and racialization and displacement in a favor of a focus on this nation's workers which is often coded white workers and also end up ignoring you know kind of workers struggles internationally within that question i'm also asking you how central is migrant justice and migrant worker struggle to all forms of struggle and what is the potential especially for other communities and all other organizing when we center migrant justice i'll start with the end because i remember it and i'll come around to the left uh, which maybe maybe needs to be disaggregated anyway i did an interview with my phd supervisor bridget anderson who who's been writing about no borders for a while and remains in conversation about no borders and border abolition and it was nice to do that interview but i remember how she ended it with something about how we need to get the struggles of migrants and the struggles against immigration controls into the heart of other kinds of movements, like struggles over housing or over work, um, because if we don't start with them near the beginning, then they'll be introduced as a means of dividing us later. She says something like that. And I think that's true, and that's kind of what we're advocating in the book broadly, is that there can be no kind of progressive left politics within any given nation state that remains in the service of workers defined as natives, I don't know, well, let's come to the left, I don't know whether that's predominant. It might be a consistent experience we have that's frustrating that people who are ostensibly on our side agree that you know, we should fight for better working conditions or for decent houses, then turn around and say, yeah, but not for immigrants. That, does, that will happen. I don't have a kind of sketch out of where those problems are. People doing the work, nuts and bolts work, will know who they confront and then have to be strategic about how you make your version, which I think is more compelling, and I think a lot of people are on side, the one that dominates in any given institution or any given struggle. Um, that's hard work, but that's politics in a way. You're always going to come up against people who are on your side for now for this thing, but actually you fundamentally disagree on some issues. Uh, that includes issues around sex work, gender, I think in the book what we try and do is, you know, we make a broad argument against the argument for open borders, which can be a right-wing or even liberal libertarian argument for the free movement of rightless labour. We try and distinguish that from what No Borders is. Again, this is building out from that great paper, Why No Borders, by Bridget and other people, which says exactly what Gracie said, you know, we're not arguing that we'll just remove immigration controls and keep things as they are, and we're not even saying that not many people will move anyway. We're actually talking about a whole transformation uh, and anti-capitalist politics, which is planetary. And we, we do that after talking about gender and race. So hopefully the history of the modern world, which has always been a colonial story, modernity and colon colonialism coexisting together, and the development of capitalist modernity. Because we've told that story, hopefully it's compelling that we say, you know, we need to be internationalist and planetary. Then we also make an argument against those left nativisms which imagine we can fight for workers within one nation state. I was annoyed when Angela Nagel wrote that piece about the kind of left-wing case for borders. We try and unpick that. I don't think it's a particularly hard argument to unpick. And we make an argument about the ways in which unions within a given place can be strengthened and enlivened by being inclusive of non-citizens. Some of the groups that have done that really well, 
some of the groups that haven't. We don't dwell lots on the ones that haven't, but you know, we can give examples of, of organized workers calling for immigration controls in the US, in the UK, in Australia. You can talk about the dock workers union coming out for Enoch Powell, etc. Give all those examples if you want. Anti-Semitism within the left, um, historically as a labor movement. We need to know that. The book's not really trying to dissect all the things that are, that are wrong with various movements and the ways in which they've been racist. So we try and look at some of the things that have worked, some of the things that people are already demanding. The bigger unions and definitely the independent ones, which includes unionizing people who work in the sex industry, for example, and we make that claim loud and clear throughout. And then the other thing we try and do, or a thing that's on our mind, I suppose, is thinking about those who might not be included in the workers' movement in general. And that includes people doing some kinds of work and also people who are criminalized and people who are on the move. And so we try and also perhaps dethrone necessarily the position of the proletarian worker and think about all of the people with whose fate we want to tie ours in the struggle against immigration control. Uh, that might become increasingly relevant as labor is made increasingly precarious and informalized, etc. To move on, and something you've touched on a little bit with both your positions in an NGO and within academia. Um, there's a beautiful Bell Hooks quote from an essay she wrote, no insurgent intellectual, no dissenting critical voice in this society escapes the pressure to conform. We are all vulnerable. We can all be had, co-opted, bought. There is no special grace that rescues any of us. There is only constant struggle. Gracie, as you've worked for you know, a big NGO and Luke in academia, do you see a de-radicalizing potential of these institutions in the fight against bordering? And what advice can you give to those who work in the same, if not similar, institutions? And what roles do you see NGOs and the academy, charities, etc., playing in the process of border abolition and supporting the displaced, refugee, and mobile? Mm. In terms of kind of the de-radicalizing potential of NGOs, I mean, I see it also if you're a person in those institutions navigating that, that dynamic, it's actually a very radicalizing experience, so it does go both ways. I mean, I think that sometimes people are on just completely different temporalities. If you are an NGO that got funding for a specific project and you need to report to a funder in 18 months, there are things that you're just not going to go for because there aren't going to be tangible outcomes that your funder is going to recognise and want to renew your funding for. Well, I suppose this is an issue with philanthropy as well, because actually most of the time you can't put in a funding bid for like 15 years. That's just not going to happen. Um, so I think people are on different temporalities. Abolitionist groups that I've been involved in, sometimes against Borders for Children, you know, we were trying to stop a specific data collection that was happening there and then. And our campaign strategy was 18 months to two years. But sometimes you're thinking, what work am I doing now? the impact of which like I'm not even going to live to see it like what is going to be possible for the next generation of activists because of the lines that we held in the here and now NGOs don't think like that when NGOs are thinking long term they're thinking about the longevity of the institution as an end in itself that might be a sweeping generalization I obviously haven't worked at every NGO but at every NGO that I've worked at that has been the only long-range thinking how can we sustain this thing as an end in itself whereas when I think about the against borders for children campaign we had no institutional interest. We didn't think this campaign needs to last forever. And we, nobody was paid. We just wanted to get this one thing done. And so we didn't have an institutional investment. Our investment was in kind of our relationships with one another 
as a group and the kind of culture and what we prefigured in our organising together. And it was, can we stop this data collection on migrant children? We were never trying to kind of build the Against Borders for Children empire. So you have really different institutional interests. But I also think that there's something quite specific about the role of the law. I've just spent a really long time working with lawyers and obviously there are loads of really amazing radical lawyers who've got a really great power analysis of the limitations of what you can and can't do within the context of the law so i don't want to make a really sweeping generalization but i have also just spent so much time and energy dealing with what i call qc brain which is just a very particular way of thinking let me give you a specific example facial recognition technology I was at an organisation that needed to figure out its position on facial recognition technology. All of the white lawyers were essentially just like, this is obviously going to get deployed by loads of police forces. Let's figure out what our role can be in forcing some legislation that means it's not completely unfettered use. So their position was essentially, let's say we want to regulate facial recognition. Those of us who are more junior in the institution and minoritized in a wide variety of ways, we were just like, why would we give up that much ground? Why would we not say, let's ban facial recognition? Let's think about the potential that this technology has in transforming state capacity to know where we are, who we're with, what we're doing at any given time, and then intervene on our lives on that basis. Think about what that does a, for everybody in the kind of society that we live in, but B, in particular, for minoritized people, for racialized people and so on. Why would you cede so much ground in assuming that state use of this technology is inevitable? And even if you think that we can't get a ban, why wouldn't you just call for one and shift the whole Overton window in that direction so that people don't believe that this is inevitable? And the thing is, is that you can have those battles. I've had so many of those battles. You know, you sit in meetings where people are like, maybe child prisons are good, actually, or <laughs> genuinely. Um, or you sit in meetings where people are like, why don't we get a young black man to cover his face in front of a facial recognition camera and then the police will intervene and then we can represent him in court. These are real conversations that I've had to sit through. And the point is, is that like the toll of that struggle that Bell Hooks refers to, it's exhausting. Sometimes you can get the institution to go in a direction that means that you get to do work that genuinely wouldn't have happened with the resources that you might never have had in another context. And I think about something that we were able to do at Liberty, we were able to do the Alternative Coronavirus Act, which was essentially a completely different vision for managing the pandemic that said, let's put the left behind people first, let's not trample people's civil liberties, let's resource people to stay safe, stay at home and so on. And that's a piece of work that would have been really hard to do in the context of an unfunded grassroots group without the support of lots of lawyers, without the resources to bring loads of grassroots groups together, without the reach of a professionalised comms team and in reach with MPs and so on and so forth. So sometimes you can get the institution to go where you want it to go, but I think it's up to us individually to decide to what extent do I want to battle this institution? Some people love transforming institutions. That's not me, I'm not interested. I just want to get certain kinds of work done. That's something that we have to decide personally, but I think that it's important for us to acknowledge that you just don't have to do that work all the time. You can just say, I'm not doing it anymore. For me personally, that's why I was really intent on this book being launched and me not being in any formalized institutional context because I just didn't want that and I wanted to be able to speak freely. So I think it's about acknowledging that that struggle is always gonna happen, 
and drawing your own boundaries around that and making sure that you always have book project with Luke or abolitionist futures or you know whatever it is that sustains you beyond the life of the institution because they are how they are mm, beautiful do you have anything to add i mean i don't think i have that much interesting to say about universities i think most of us know that they're you know exclusive gated places that now increasingly are organized around profit all i would say is that they provide a refuge for some of us some of the time people have to work despite how difficult they are to access for most people we can try and, if you're an academic, do work that's relevant to people outside um, the institution and not get too caught up taking yourself too seriously. And then, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh yeah, and then obviously organising within the institution to change the conditions for students and workers, which is, we can just rinse and repeat that formula, but obviously UCU are trying in difficult times to make the institution better or at least not get a lot worse. And that's been enlivening. That's some of the best conversations I've had with colleagues and actually knowing who my colleagues are and with students has been on the picket line which I've been on strike for a significant part of my academic career so that's been fun and also hard. <laughs> There's so much that I could ask you about with this book and I suppose for everyone here my biggest recommendation is to read it and to also engage in the many many texts that are referenced throughout the book and also the references that both Gracie and Luke have mentioned this evening but I would like to end our discussion on the question of climate change and migration and give you the opportunity to finally reinforce that importance of border abolition, especially in the face of a heating world. Can you discuss why or if and why border abolition is necessary in the climate change struggle? I mean, in a way, the little interlude that Gracie read, you can see there that the climate has changed and I suppose None of us are imagining that we're going to live, you know, we don't live in the Holocene anymore and we're not going to be, the 21st century is not going to have the same temperature as the 20th, although we're fighting for it to stay below certain nightmarish possibilities. So I think that means that people will have to move in new ways. It means there'll be pressures that we all can see already and foresee that raise the stakes if they can be raised any further. Um, if the government of mobility and movement is the problem of the 21st century, then that's fundamentally driven also by climatological changes, which might not always look like climate-based issues. You know, people talk about the Syrian civil war as the first climate change war. I.O. Weissman's written about the conflict shoreline and where the water ends and where drone strikes fall, etc. So we're going to see a confluence of war, changing climatological conditions, desertification, etc., drive particular forms of movement and conflict, etc. This is all really terrifying. I find mostly that that's where I start and then realize therefore that the kind of liberal politics of reformism that we're writing against just seems totally absurd. That short time frame makes no sense. Fighting fires is important, but we also need to be thinking about the fires that are to come and all of the things we need to do to challenge the permanence of borders and the nation state as the container through which people live. The right certainly are starting to think in terms of the politics and the ethics of the lifeboat, the armed lifeboat. You know, there's, if you think about right-wing eco-fascisms, for example, some of them might be about denialism, but increasingly they're also about, and I talked about racist, demographic racism, they're really about this idea and read like US national security stuff. They kind of are already planning for and thinking about extreme, extreme illiberal responses to climate migration. I'm gonna leave you to do with the dreaming. The only thing I will say <laughs> is that a lot of the kind of liberal response can be to try and squeeze people into a, a new expanded box like the climate refugee, which might be useful to talk about. But what it ultimately does for me is unsettle 
the very idea that we can isolate someone's persecution and victimhood from their economic need, from their need to live full and flourishing lives and just to move for reasons that won't always be legible as here is my suffering laid out for you. As climate change intersects with war and with economic crises, I think we shouldn't just wait until a court case in some international court somewhere from a group whose island is no longer going to be above sea level. Yeah, that's important, but I don't, if we focus on those cases where the climate seems so obvious to be driving the movement, we might miss the broader fact that a heating world will lead to various forms of intersecting crises that will always, as they always have, changing conditions drive people to move. We need very radical solutions, and I think in terms of, to go back to the question about where we think abolition might be possible. We know that it is possible for people to see one another and imagine themselves having a shared fate and shared vulnerabilities when it comes to global uprisings like in relation to BLM um, and SARS, etc., and climate movements themselves. And we also know that we're very capable of organizing some things at scale, whether that's trade, regulations and standards, all of the kind of boring stuff that makes all of the shit we consume move very quickly. We need to kind of find a way to build a planetary revolutionary politics out from all of the things, all of the bits of hope we see at a smaller scale. Well, I was just going to add that it was interesting because again, when it came to writing The Borderless Utopia and The Border Dystopia, we didn't talk about climate, I don't think, before that, but it was impossible to write those without climate actually, in particular in Utopia, just being an enormous part of it. It didn't feel possible to imagine a borderless utopia where actually some kind of meaningful, genuine, enduring response to climate catastrophe had been made. It's quite interesting actually when I think about it because in dystopia, the climate is fucked, but that's not actually the headline. And I wonder if part of that is because that sense of inevitability feels so great that there was something else in dystopia, particularly around the role of new technologies that we really wanted to emphasize. But I suppose that's also a testament to kind of the success of the climate movement in, you know, we're not climate activists, but it, it was impossible for us to imagine anything that didn't involve those issues. So in some ways that's cause for taking hope. There's a little bit in the abolition chapter that's really kind of sets out the internationalist or post-nationalist aspect of our vision, which is really about us asking how might we relate to distant others in ways that aren't mediated by the state. And we think about some non-reformist reforms and one of them, you know, we were thinking about, well, what if we were to defund Frontex, which is the EU's kind of shared border agency and invest in global solidarity funds for the global south to use for climate mitigation so obviously in in the way that abolition is redistributive to some extent we've been thinking about okay well what if all of those resources that go into border technologies and immigration enforcement what if they were put in service of climate mitigation adaptation reclamation of land and so on so i think that's quite an important aspect of the abolitionist lens when it comes to border abolition. And I might leave it there because that's actually a bit more tangible, a bit more concrete. That was Gracie May Bradley and Luke Dinaronya on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about the book on bookhousebristol.com, along with details about their other forthcoming events, many of which will appear on this podcast series in due course. So we'll be back later this month with episode 57 of our regular panel show and then again in November with episode 5 of RIC In-House in which Andrew Murray talks to Darren McLaughlin from Bookhouse about the Corbyn years and their aftermath 
and questions of strategy for the left in Britain today. So do come back for that one. And until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>